You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an associate professor of history at Claremont McKenna College and the author of Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. Her research focuses on the recent political and urban history in the United States with a focus on liberalism and the Democratic Party. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, and many more. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Lily Geismer. Thank you so much for joining us, Lily. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. Firstly, I wanted to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what drove you to write your latest book and give us a quick overview. Sure. So I, as you, you gave me a great introduction. So my name is Lily Geismer, and I'm an associate professor of history at uh, Claremont McKenna College. And primarily, my research has focused on questions of liberalism and the Democratic Party. I wrote um, another book called Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party, which came out in 2015 with Princeton University Press. And in the course of working on that book, um, the, which was primarily a study of suburban liberals um, in the suburbs of Boston, um, the last chapter of it looked at the career of Mike Dukakis and the rise of kind of the new, who become known as the New Democrats and their sort of solutions um, for addressing issues of inequality. And I became really interested in how many Democrats, like people, people like Mike Dukakis, um, started to promote market-oriented um, approaches to addressing key social problems. And in, in the case of Dukakis, there was a particular interest in using the tech industry, but also using kind of more market um, and, and the, the, the market in the private sector to address questions of welfare. So that in and of itself really fascinated me, um, and I wanted to look at it. Um, another key issue, and actually this is true in both of my books, but a lot, and especially in the field of political history, which is where I'm located, um, U.S. political history, there's the the field is primarily focused on looking at um, Repub the Republican Party and the rise of conservatism or the rise of the new right, the age of Reagan, um, and especially that sort of story um, since the uh, in the late 20th century. Um, and there's been less attention to the Democrats, um, and primarily when when scholars and and I think this is true of the press too talk about the history of the Democratic Party, it's often um, sort of in reaction to the Republicans. And this is especially true on issues of, of the, um, the Democrats' relation, Democratic Party's promotion in relation to the private sector and market-oriented principles. So the idea is that the, the reason that the Democrats began to adopt these types of policies was because they were reacting to what Republicans were doing. And I wanted to kind of push against that narrative and understand that it's actually that the Democrats, um, the, the Democrats, especially who become known as the new Democrats um, of the Democratic Leadership Council, who Bill Clinton is the kind of um, quintessential example, their approach, their adoption of market thinking um, and kind of uses of the market was not just defensive, but actually was was affirmative in many ways and that they, they fundamentally believed in certain ideas of using um, using the private sector to do some of the work that was once under the domain of the public sector. Hello, my name is Devin, and I currently make about $4,000 a month playing video games. My name is Matt, and I make a couple hundred bucks a month writing articles on Medium.com. Barney Simbola from Baltimore, Maryland, make about $1,000 a day. The end of the weekend, we have a net profit 
of three grand. It was doubling my income from my nine to five job. And I said, I got to quit. We are furniture flippers and on average make three to $4,000 a month. Four months was able to actually double my salary. Three and a half thousand dollars a day. I was able to make a thousand dollars one day. I was afraid to stay where I was. We did $90,000. Success leaves clues. Real people are making real money outside of traditional jobs. The Side Hustle Show shares their stories and the realistic actions you can take to start building your own extra income streams. Follow The Side Hustle Show on Spotify, SideHustleNation.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, um, thanks. Thanks for the overview. Um, so to start off, I wanted to ask you a bit about the introduction of the book. Um, you begin by talking about President Clinton's attempts to boost economic growth in some of the poorest areas of the country, um, uh, mentioning his visits there, um, such as Pennington and Appalachia through capital investments and microfinance initiatives. Uh, before we even get into the impacts of market-based um, as opposed to government solutions for these issues, I, I wanted to get your opinions on just the intentions alone. Um, so for Milton Friedman era, neoliberal, the entire idea of the government getting involved in boosting economic growth in certain areas would, would be insane. So at any given point, including before and during the Clinton presidency, there were millions of unfulfilled jobs across the country. But despite this fact, internal migration was plummeting um, and at um, all time lows. So in my view, America was built on people moving away from their hometowns to seek adventure and opportunity, often in the face of great uncertainty. So why tell the people in Pennington or Appalachia that they were untapped markets that needed investment rather than telling them to leave and go where the opportunity lay. So would you agree that even the intentions were wrong from the get-go or misplaced? Well, I don't think necessarily the solution is always to move away from the communities in which you're living. Um, And that's not often a choice for many people, especially people who have multi-generation, you know, many generations of ties to particular communities, which often is true, especially in rural areas. Um, I think that there can be often a the thing I take more issue with is promising certain kinds of solutions that work in one place um, and thinking that those can be sort of translated to another place. And that's often what the Clinton administration and many Democrats did did for years and continue to do. Um, so I think that that's where I sort of see this idea of um, the idea that kind of the solution will just be in corporate and corporate the, the other issue, sort of fundamental issue with this approach of kind of um, treating places like Appalachia and parts of the um, the South and many actually um, urban um, urban poor communities as well. So treating them as new markets um, suggests too that the, just having just having corporate investment is going to solve the multitude of other problems um, and um, and economic problems of various different communities which had faced generations of disinvestment. Um, and that I think that is where some a lot of the kind of the the tensions lie where it's where these are not the the greatest solutions to problems. Okay, um, so next I wanted to go back and talk a bit about the transition of the Democratic Party from LBJ's war on poverty to President Clinton's more market-oriented ideas. So since the war on poverty was declared in the 1960s to the time Clinton took office, the poverty rate remained almost unaffected um, with a very slight decrease. However, during this time, the United States was spending enormous amounts on the welfare state with extremely high administrative costs and tons of bureaucracy, um, all while having little to no effect on the actual poverty rate. So in your view, what um, what was it that influenced the shift uh, away from the government ad- administered programs? Was it merely an electoral strategy or, um, or was there something deeper than that? I think there's more than Charles Foster. And I'll say, I mean, the U.S. was, does, you know, consistently since the war on pause, since the 1960s, 
did spend a sizable amount of money on its welfare state, but that also includes things like social security. And actually a very small portion of that budget went to like war on poverty style programs. So I think one of the issues is that there's often this kind of fault that the the false assumptions as to the kind of failures of the war on poverty. I mean, there's many things the war on poverty did really effectively. Um, and also sort of, I think the other issue is conflating welfare state with war on poverty. The war on poverty was never actually a welfare program. LBJ himself was very opposed to, to um, to um, direct cash assistance. So that's the famous idea of the war on poverty of being a hand up, um, not a hand out. So it was much more on programs sort of addressing um, issues of empowerment um, as a solution. I think it was deeply underfunded um, and also kind of um, limited in what it, what it, in its design and what it could sort of fully accomplish. So I think we often, there's often this assumption of looking back to the war on poverty as this redistributive program, which it never was. So that leads to some of the kinds of limitations. And I will say that's often something that is, that is attributed to sort of the, the Republican, the Republican party running on the problems of the, um, the war on poverty. And you can see this in the great society. And that's sort of critical to Ronald Reagan's um, president, you know, a political career in a variety of different ways, um, who makes the war on poverty, the great society war on poverty, sort of the symbols of various different sort of problems that, um, that he sees with liberalism um, and the kind of the Democratic Party. But I think what's important is that there's many Democrats who in the 1970s, 1980s um, are are promoting a similar idea of the kinds of problems. I think one of the big things that they, that they understand as a limitation on the one um, to the war on poverty and great society approach is that it was it was building big bureaucracies, which they believed was inefficient. So this is um, this was led primarily by the people who come to be known as the Watergate babies or the Atari Democrats, and essentially eventually they're calling the New Democrats. Um, it's people like. Gary Hart, who come into office in 1974, and they're very critical of that style. Um, and they think that there's better, there are better mechanisms to create um, the welfare state. I think this goes back to your original question about Milton Friedman and Milton Friedman's approach and what's different about this, um, this style of market thinking than to what someone like Friedman would argue for, um, which is that they they come they be, they still believe in kind of that there are certain responsibilities of the of government um, and of society to help to take care of people who are who are poor or less fortunate um, and but they just sort of see the some of the older programs of the Great Society and the War on Poverty is not the sort of the best means to do that. I think the other issue I mean that's important and so there's there is an electoral component for sure but I don't think that's the only thing. I think that the other thing, if we just if you just want to ask questions about the welfare or like a sort of cash assistance um, and the, what we traditionally think of as welfare programs, um, those programs had had ex had expanded for a number of reasons over the course of the 1960s and 1970s. Prim one of the prim primary reasons for that happening um, was that many more people who were entitled to welfare um, believed that they should receive welfare payments um, requested and were granted welfare payments. But the program itself, I mean, I think for everyone, um, you know, across the political spectrum by the 1980s, we're seeing that the welfare system was deeply flawed, um, that for um, for um, if you're the Republican Party, many were sort of advocating that this was just sort of people was give, making people not try to get jobs. It was kind of creating this kind of new this kind of dependency on the state. Um, I think for many um, for many liberals and people on the left believe that they're actually the payments weren't weren't enough um, and that the state it needed to be expanded. So in this moment, I mean, there was all kinds of debates about sort of what was the best approach to addressing this bigger problem of welfare. I think another big issue about the welfare, if you go back to kind of the initial um, AFDC program, um, it was 
it was a limited program that was started during the New Deal that was asked to do a tremendous amount um, and was not necessarily always designed to do what it was to, to be as big as it was uh, meant to meant to be. And that there just hadn't been chances for substantial reform. Okay, um, so next I wanted to get your take on the Clinton era welfare reforms that gutted cash assistance. Um, You mentioned that. um, So the 1996 Welfare Reform Act that set time limits on welfare, um, among other things, is one of the most controversial bills in U.S. history. Um, Even more surprising is that a bill so radical for its time was passed by Democrat, um, uh, something that was uh, conventionally, you know, advocated for um, by Republicans. So I wanted to get your take on what led President Clinton to sign this bill into law and how it fit within his broader economic agenda. Yeah, so Clinton was a um, was a, a strong advocate of welfare reform dating back to his time as governor of Arkansas. He actually was um, as a governor. Um, he was the head of the National Governors Association in the 1980s. Um, and really been advocating for welfare reform. Um, it was quite critical to his mission, and especially this idea of um, of both t- of less on time limits and mostly on um, on um, on work requirements. Um, so that was something that he experimented with in Arkansas, and many other um, many other um, states were trying out these types of pro- these types of programs. There was a small. Um, there was also a, a federal jobs program. Um, and you know, the work ideas of work for go back to the '60s. Ronald Reagan had, had advocated for them as well. Um, so Clinton made that this idea. I mean, this this actually was sort of central to his national rise to um, to prominence. Um, and he made the idea of ending welfare as we know it central to his 1992 presidential campaign. Um, and it did. I mean, this goes to your question about electoral electoral electorally. It was actually really popular. I mean, so that that um, and you know, oftentimes often is seen as kind of central to um, to his support. So he wanted to end to turn to transition from the cash direct cash assistance to a program that um, that advocated for um, helping women get off um, get off welfare and with a time with a time limit of the amount you could have cash assistance. Uh, the initial Clinton welfare reform plans um, had much more social sort of social uh, social services to help with that process. Um, and part of what leads to the the bill that um, that you mentioned, the 1986 welfare reform bill, that is profoundly controversial, um, is the fact that in the interim period um, of he initially proposed, he proposes welfare reform in 1984. Um, it it um, is voted down in Congress or actually never, never really reaches a vote. Um, and then the 1984 election happens um, where um, the Republicans recapture Congress um, during the, with the Gingrich revolution. Um, and I think in many ways, um, Gingrich was really upset that in there it's advocated that sort of Clinton took their best issue or took his best issue uh, of welfare reform. And so the Republicans began to push back. Um, and there's a series of bill of, of, of bills that are um, that are proposed and passed over the between the period of 1995 and 1996, um, two of which Clinton vetoes. Um, and finally, in the, in the summer of 1996, um, as he's facing re-election, um, he decides to sign into law the 1996 welfare reform. So, um, which leads to much controversy. Actually, many people in the um, within even within his administration pushed back. Actually, a large a large portion of his administration was upset with what he um, ended up signing. Okay, um, but um, I, I understand that a lot of the the Democrats might have been probably quite a bit upset with um, what President Clinton proposed. Um, but can you give us a bit of an idea about the Republican response to this bill? 
Well, I mean, I think that amongst Republicans, um, there was more of a sense of popular of popularity and sort of seeing it as a comprom as a compromise bill. I mean, I think so. As I said, I mean, I think some Republicans were frustrated that it was signed under a a, um, a Democratic administration. And we often think about welfare, like sort of the um, the critiques of welfare coming from Republicans. That's the famous kind of uh, Ronald Reagan welfare um, welfare queen um, idea. Um, and that actually it was under a democratic administration that um, that the, uh, the the sort of end, I mean, in really the end of the federal program that had been enacted under the um, in the New Deal um, was was eradicated. A new system came into place for the most part. I mean, my understanding is that um, I don't think that there was like wide celebration amongst Republicans um, because it was passed by and Clinton who's in many ways gets credit for the bill. Um, and for the act, and it's under his, it's under, much more under his legacy. Um, but the Republicans were really successful in getting, getting, um, getting into the, the, um, into the, the law, many of the things they've been advocating for, um, especially around um, a lack of social services, um, turning to a more block grant ac- approach. So, so what um, the, the ultimate law looks like has many of those kind of fingerprints on it. Okay, um, so next I wanted to give you a chance to respond to the Washington Post article, which presented um, a scathing critique of your latest book, um, which stated that the book was, quote, twisting Bill Clinton's economic record to blame him for inequality. So there are two contentions I want to ask you about today and get your response to. So the first um, is um, the the book's failure to differentiate between inequality and sufficiency. Um, so the article states that, quote, Geismer conflates the underlying issues of poverty and inequality. This is a common mistake, yet still one to be avoided. As philosopher Han- Harry Frankfurt explains, we abhor poverty not because some people have more than others, but because some people don't have enough. Sufficiency, not strict economic parity, is what a welfare state or any good society aspires to provide. To be sure, widening wealth gaps of our times have created distinct problems, giving the upper classes readier access to high-quality education and healthcare, and a louder political voice. But Geismer doesn't tackle those naughty issues, the remedies for which we are still struggling to find. So how do you respond to the claim that the book fails to differentiate between um, uh, inequality and sufficiency? Well, I think there's a bigger issue with the way that the, the review of the book is framed. And I should say, too, as I, I your readers know, the book, this book has gotten um, has actually been widely um, has been widely positively praised by other reviewers, um, including in The New York Times and in The New Republic um, and, and a variety of other different um, publications. But I think that what's important with the way that the, what the reviewer, um, David Greenberg, brought up um, is that he framed the book as being only about Clinton's economic record, which is an, an economic policies, which is not, it's actually a much broader understanding of um, the shift and how the Democrats um, really since the 1970s were thinking about this connection between um, the economy and inequality and poverty. Um, and I, as I understand it, I mean, I think one thing is that I wanted to look at, um, the, and this goes back to your questions about the war on poverty, Ideas of addressing questions of poverty have been really central to the Democratic Party's vision. It's one thing that is kind of at the core of, of kind of what it what it um, it promises to do. Um, and I that was that was one thing that I was really interested in. Um, and so given sort of looking at the book and sort of thinking about that, I, I'm looking at questions about from that lens of inequality, what we can learn about. And I will say, I mean, it does talk about issues like education um, and other types of things, but I wanted to kind of understand, especially around questions of, of how this kind of it, it, 
it was more the ideology. And so in many ways, what the book is doing is looking at um, ideas um, and the development of particular ideas that come out of the Democratic, the New Democrats and the Democratic Leadership Council that come into fruition during the Clinton years, um, less so than a broad understanding of every aspect of the Clinton um, era policy. I will say my what I try to show is that um, and I think that this is what the also the um, the um, reviewer is is was addressing, um, you know, is that by the end of the Clinton years that there you know, was a was a boom time in many ways. Um, but I think some of the persistent issues of poverty and the persistent issues of inequality were not solved. Um, and that's really important to understand. And in both counts, um, in either you can see them as disaggregated or together, um, it left poor poor people and low-income people, if that's what you want to think about inequity, um, in a much more vulnerable position. And that's what I wanted to sort of understand is how these kinds of remakings of the social welfare state um, through and, and kind of both things like welfare reform, but also with um, the other efforts to kind of use the market in terms of promoting deregulation um, create, was really fundamental to sort of um, address it, uh, continuing and if not exact and, and fundamentally exacerbating the problems of both poverty and inequality in the United States. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I think this is, this, that brings me sort of to the second contention in the book um, that I wanted you to respond to, which is the failure to contextualize Clinton's economic record. Um, so you claimed um, just a, a moment ago about how it wasn't sort of supposed to be sort of a, a broad overview of the entire Clinton economics agenda, um, but that you do contend that it left poor people um, more vulnerable. Um, so the article stated that, quote, um, by the end of Bill Clinton's presidency, the poverty rate was the lowest in decades. The U.S. economy was enjoying an unprecedented expansion with unemployment and inflation at 30-year lows. Prosperity was broadly shared. Median family income rose as it has not since the 1960s. Black and Hispanic Americans escaped indigence in record numbers too. Um, the bottom fifth of all earners, unlike um, in the 1980s, saw their income climbs. The Washington Post also wrote, quote, you won't find these facts in Left Behind, the Democrats' attempt, failed attempt to solve inequality. Um, so, Dr. Geismer, how do you respond to the claim that your book does not provide a fair and nuanced take of the overall economic performance and that you ignore um, the effects that overall administrations that, that subsequent administrations had on the impacts of the Clinton era policies? Well, because I wanted to look at how it was affecting the people at the top and the people at the bottom. Um, and I think that understanding how those and how the Clinton administration tried to tie them. Um, and I think that goes back to this question that you asked about the new markets program, about this idea of sort of help trying to use corporations to solve the problems of poverty. So using corporate or turning to helping have cor corporations do the work that was once the responsibility of government by bringing in, you know, sort of substantial investment or asking corporations to do take over certain ideas and responsibilities that were once that were once kind of critical to the role of government. Um, and that was kind of the, the kinds of relationships and dynamics I wanted to look at rather than give a sort of overview of the Clinton era of the Clinton um, era. And there are economically and there are books that do that and will do that. I think there are more that are coming out. But I was especially interested in this 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 particular question about kind of how these kind of ideas persisted. And I do think that it's unfair, that's, that's also unfair to, to go back to the reviewer. If you look at kind of just ending on the night at the end of the nineties, and my book doesn't do that. It has an epilogue that thinks about the kinds of consequences of many of these policies um, into the two thousands. And I think it's, it's undeniable that sort of you have less than a decade later, a large financial crisis in which um, many of the policies implemented under the Clinton administration in its, in, 
And many of those actually in its effort to solve inequality. So things like um, deregulating um, certain aspects of the housing market, um, even the larger financial deregulation um, policies, which the book briefly does, does look at in the final chapter. Um, all of those were this idea that, that was going to sort of help Americans and it was going to be something that would sort of address inequality. And I think over, I think, I think most people, and I would argue this, saw them do exactly the opposite. And you can see that really pay, playing itself out um, for um for poor, especially for the poorest, most vulnerable people, and especially for people of color. So I think it's an. Un, I think that that's an, that's also a selective reading of the um, of the statistics of the 1990s. And I will say one thing. I mean, I think about the. I, you asked. You asked. You know, responding to the review. Um, one thing that I think is unfair in that review um, is that the author accuses me of sort of having an ideological agenda when um, when he clearly himself, it's a book review anyway, I mean, but um, when he clearly himself had his own ide- ideolo- ideological agenda, which was about largely sort of um, celebrating key aspects of the Clinton, um, the Clinton presidency and Clinton legacy. So, I mean, I would encourage him if that's something that he isn't, he wants to do that potentially he could write his own book on the Clinton era. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I just want to make clear that I am in no way endorsing um, the review or, or claiming that we at the economics review agree with that. Um, I just think it's merely fair to give you a chance to respond to some of the major claims in that in a public forum, um, you know, just because that that sort of, um, you know, our publication doesn't doesn't really give you the opportunity to defend yourself and clarify some of the things that um, the author um, may have misunderstood or overlooked. No, uh, and I appreciate that. Thank you. It, it, it is um, it's it is a you know, there, it's fascinating that there's we have lots of places for debate, but actually not often um, in um, in print. So I appreciate that opportunity. Cool. Um, and so finally, I I wanted to ask you about, and I'm not sure um, how how well this connects to your um, expertise in in recent history, but about the Democratic Party shift um, sort of after the Clinton era. So um, I think in in recent years, um, sort of the the consensus, especially from the Republicans, has been. That the Democrats have moved more towards big government, um, New Deal style, style programs, advocating for things like uh, Medicare, Medicare for all, um, you know, uh, student free free college, um, those sorts of programs um, that that are more reminiscent of uh, New Deal era programs and more on poverty era programs than they are of, of the Clinton era. Um, and so a lot of what you hear from modern Republicans actually tends to sound a bit similar to what, what um, you would have expected to hear from Clinton. Um, so I did want to get your take on where the Democratic Party has shifted, has shifted um, in that time span um, and where you think that's where that trajectory you think is likely headed. Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And I, mean, I think many ways. I mean, so another thing that um, with the questions of sort of the impact of the Clinton administration um, and the Clinton, the Clinton time. Um, and this I guess this, this partially goes back to the earlier thing about the review. I mean, I think another issue that what ended up happening with a lot of the kinds of programs that the Clinton administration um promoted, especially for addressing these questions around poverty and inequality, is many of the people that it was it was purportedly helping didn't really feel like they were getting the help that they deserved. And I think turned to sort of a profound alienation with the Democratic Party. Um, and so that I think that that got led into both kind of people voting, um, either not voting um, and not sort of or supporting uh, many people who come to sort of support Trump um, in by 2016. But I think that the Democrats in the kind of last 
I mean, I think it's actually in many ways post the Obama years have come to recognize um, the ways in which the types of things that they were they were um, they were sort of promoting no longer could sort of solve this, this some of the sort of serious um, economic and social problems um, of the 21st century. I think this especially came became true during the pandemic, um, where in the kind of emergency. Um, in the questions of kind of addressing emergency relief actually did start to sort of resemble a a New Deal style program. And a lot of those became really popular. Um, And so, I mean, that goes to the question of going back to cash assistance. Like many people actually liked getting getting, um, support and checks from the government. So I think that that has led to a kind of shifting away from some of the kinds of um, the kinds of programs that um, were really popular and were promoted, I would say, both in the Clinton years and then and then in many ways under Obama as well. Um, and I think it's a really interesting, I mean, I think there's an interesting, I think one of the things that, that will come up um, right now um, is that um, oftentimes the Democratic Party, um, I think this has to do with like larger tensions within the party, um, sort of get nervous. Um, and I think I, in many, I think that in some ways, the kind of um, platform of 2020 was a bit of an anomaly, given the kind of variety of different circumstances, many confluence of circumstances that were going on. But I think it'll be really interesting with the midterms to kind of see how much um, people like Biden sort of in the, um, and um, many other um, congressional Democrats um, sort of double down on kind of big, a, a kind of more big government approach or sort of shift away from it with the idea that, that it's not popular with voters. So I, that's, I think that it's actually very much at a sort of crossroads as to where the party will be, which is an ongoing tension, tension within the Democratic Party. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Um, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.